from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. I'm Shale Khan, and this is Catalyst. Sometimes in talks, I say we're in the middle of a, or at the early stages, honestly, of a hundred trillion dollar clean energy revolution. That, that sounds like it's just a made up number. When you look actually look at the infrastructure turnover we need to address climate change, it is that big. Do I expect clean tech investment to bust again? I actually do at some point, but I think it to rise from that trough as well. So I wanted to kick this show off by tackling head on perhaps the most important question guiding my professional life, which is, can deep tech climate venture capital work? In other words, will all these investors who are betting on early stage hard tech innovations in heavy emitting sectors like energy, transportation, agriculture, and industry win? I sure hope so. The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, costs, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes, or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. I'm Shail Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm, Energy Impact Partners. Welcome to Catalyst. And the answer to this question around deep tech plus climate does not just matter to us venture capitalists ourselves. It dictates the availability of capital for this kind of innovation, which then influences the volume of startup activity, the success of those startups, the talent pool that's chasing the space, and the ecosystem that builds around it. If you believe that we need fundamental science and engineering innovation to climb our way out of the climate crisis, this is an important question. It's also a funny question to be asking right now because there are a couple of ways to look at it. On one hand, during much of the last decade, there was pretty broad consensus in the world of VC investors that the answer, with some exceptions, cough, cough, Tesla, was no, you can't really make money in aggregate betting on deep tech in climate and energy. If you want to understand why that was the conventional wisdom, here's a stat from a 2016 MIT report authored by a couple friends of mine, Ben Gaddy and Varun Sivaram, that was called Venture Capital and Clean Tech, the Wrong Model for Clean Energy Innovation. So here's the stat. In that first wave of clean tech venture capital investment a decade ago, early stage Series A investors plowed ultimately around $1.4 billion into startups that were in the categories of material or chemical or process innovation and hardware integration, the so-called deep tech categories. How much of that $1.4 billion had those companies returned to investors by 2016 when the report was written? A grand total of $153 million. Meanwhile, the $157 million that during that same period went into software deals in clean tech had already returned more than 3x. 
The numbers would be a little bit different today thanks to companies that were actually built in that first wave and have seen big exits since, like QuantumScape, which is a good example. But nonetheless, that was the data that VCs were staring at for a long time. So the lesson was clear. On the other hand, it doesn't take a long scan of the news right now to see that, despite that historical data, capital is flowing into the deep tech climate sector as if the Hoover Dam had just burst. And there's plenty of talk around the quote unquote lessons learned from the infamous clean tech 1.0 boom and bust a decade ago. But I at least haven't seen anyone tackle this question directly, particularly with regard to the hard tech stuff. So let's do it. My partner for this conversation is my friend and fellow traveler, Ramez Nam. Mez and I have both been around the what is now called the climate tech space since the first wave. But nowadays, we're both immersed in and investing in deep tech within climate. I help lead the deep decarbonization investing efforts at Energy Impact Partners. And Mez is a partner and the chief futurist at another deep tech investor, Prime Movers Lab. So we both carry much of the same baggage, but we also have both come out the other side feeling at least some measure of optimism around this question. So with no further ado, my conversation with Mez. Mez, welcome. Shale, it's so good to be here. It is great to have you. I'm excited to have you on the new pod and also excited to have this conversation with you in particular, which I think you and I have had snippets of off mic uh, historically and have never fully gotten down to it. It's overdue and it's one of the most important questions in climate and clean tech out there. It is. And uh, one that is quite important to both your and my career at the moment. So um, <laughs> let's let's look, frame the question and sort of how we got there to start, and then we'll we'll dig into it. So I think our point here is to try to dissect this quote unquote lesson that lots of folks, I would venture to say most folks in this sort of tech and venture capital community writ large learned in the wake of the clean tech 1.0 boom and bust a decade ago, which was some version of hard tech or deep tech does not work for venture capital in climate, or sometimes it's stated as in energy. Do you think that's an accurate depiction of the lesson to start? Well, I think a lot of people believe that. And I think we did have very hard times 12, 15 years ago. But I do think we're in a different era now where it's still tough, but I think there's a lot more reason to be optimistic about venture in deep climate tech today. Right. And we'll get into all those reasons why times might be different or maybe the lesson wasn't right in the first place. But I do think we should spend a minute talking about how how that lesson was learned in the first place, because it was pretty pervasive for a very long time. And it was taken, at least in the circles that I ran in, as sort of like common wisdom in a lot of places. And it is indeed viewed as gospel. Yeah, exactly. So let's let's like talk through how we got here. Well, we had this big wave between the boundaries are fuzzy, but let's say 2006 to 2011, 2012 of uh, a big rush of venture capital going into what we call clean tech 1.0, and then a collapse that started maybe around 2010 in the midst of that, and uh, poor outcomes. A lot of money went into very hardware focused, R and D focused clean tech ventures. And as those failed to pan out, we saw this retrenchment of venture capital. And maybe it peaked around 2008, something like that. And by 2015, the dollars flowing per year had dropped by a factor of four or five, and especially for the earliest stage deals. 
uh, one of my you know first systematic exposures to that was MIT published a report that looked at Series A investments from 2006 to 2011 in clean tech, and the title of it was uh, "Venture Capital: The Wrong Model for Clean Energy" or something along those lines, and it, it scarred me. I will say, even though I, I don't agree with it fully, right? Yeah, that was the that's the perfect um, emblem of the lesson that was learned. But you know, I do think that. There was a there was a, a category of of people who sort of looked at what happened in that bust in the 2010 to 2013 bloodbath that was those many of those companies though not all of them from that first wave um, and said well clean tech writ large is a bad sector but then there were others who segmented it out a little bit more and said no the mistake here was investing in the hard tech stuff which you you pointed out a lot of the dollars in that first wave went to the hard tech stuff. I think that's that's great to point out that it wasn't that segmented in some people's minds and in others it was. And we did have good exits. We saw good exits eventually in the finance side of things and companies like SolarCity and Sunrun. We saw exits more on the software side. But the the deep hardware, particularly in in alternatives to silicon, in solar, in biofuels, battery swappings, are all things that you've brought up. We saw uh, really a bloodbath there. And that, I think two things happened. One, in the minds of those who did not segment out different types of clean tech, that was an indictment of clean tech overall for venture. And two, even among those who did separate it out, they saw hard tech, clean tech, physical hardware advances as still a bad sector and said, oh, we'll just go invest in digital. Yeah, exactly. And so, and then, you know, interestingly, as the, as clean tech has reemerged as climate tech today, there is still, you know, a class of investors who are going headlong into climate tech world, but are saying, I'll only do it in a software digital context, because I still believe it to be the case that hardware is a not an investable sector within this market. And I think that comes partially from people's background in venture in overall tech and in, you know, consumer tech or B2B tech, you still see a lot of the dollars come from network effects that come from software rich and data rich and uh, you know network effect virtuous cycle sort of companies that are hard to replicate uh, even in consumer tech. I do want to point out that there Interestingly, I think the story, even from Cleantech 1.0, is a little bit more nuanced than people give it credit for. I mean, you alluded to, right? So the big categories of where the, the money pits in Cleantech 1.0 were thin film solar, like you said, alternatives to silicon for PV, biofuels, and then one big money pit, which was, you said battery swapping, it was Better Place. Like, one they were company, the only, yeah, yeah <laughs> single large money pit. Um, and, you know, if you add those three up, those were sectoral bets, or at least two of the three were sectoral bets that just did not pan out. Then film, apart from First Solar, basically didn't win. Biofuels did not scale um, from a venture perspective, though there's a pretty big market for biofuels today, and Better Place didn't work out. If you subtract those three things out, it's a very different picture. And, you know, you weigh those then against the relatively small in number, but ultimately fairly large exits from that period, Tesla being obviously the poster child, but like QuantumScape now got out, right? And QuantumScape was a Cleantech 1.0 company founded in 2010 or maybe even earlier. Um, and now, you know, whatever it is today, a $9 billion company or something like that. And you're right. And a lot of these conclusions were drawn in 2015. They, they weren't uh, 
drawn in 2018, 19, or 2020, or let alone today when Tesla's hit a trillion dollars in valuation, or you have these large exits of companies like QuantumScape. Right. All right. Well, so regardless of whether it was right or not, this sort of lesson was learned, and it is pervasive enough today that I think it's worth addressing head on. Can you scale a business, a venture scale business, doing something hard tech or doing something deep tech in in this new climate tech domain. And so in thinking about how to dissect that question, I think there's sort of four components to the argument against hard tech in climate. So I want to run through these individually, but I'll just name them all to start. The first argument is that it's too capital intensive, just takes too much money to get to scale. So by the time you do it, the exits don't look that attractive, or maybe you'll never get there because it's going to take too much capital. That's argument one. Argument two is that mostly in the world of climate tech or energy tech, you're competing in commodity markets. And so at the end of the day, you know there's no opportunity for outsized margin um, or value creation for, for a startup. Argument three is that it takes too long. This has been a common trope as well. It's just too time intensive to build out these new technologies in these you know large incumbent historically uh, slow moving sectors. And so from a venture timescale perspective, you can't get a, a commercialization or an exit in time. And then finally, there's just no attractive exit landscape. You know, even if you can get all these other things done, there aren't strategic acquirers who will pay a premium. The public markets aren't interested in it. Uh, and so there's just no no outcome for investors. So those are our four arguments. And I think we should talk through each of them individually. So starting with the first one, too much capital to scale. What is your perspective on that in today's environment? Well, I think it is a lot of capital required to scale physical hardware technologies. There's R&D capital up front, but then the just because things go through learning rates where getting to scale is part of how they achieve innovations in the manufacturing process and so on that drive down costs, that looks awfully expensive. But I think that's in a bit of a vacuum. If you look at you know some real darlings of the, the tech VC world, companies like Uber or Lyft or WeWork, you see companies that have burned through an enormous amount of capital, far more than most uh, clean tech companies ever have or ever will. So I'm not sure that on its own, the too much capital scale argument really holds that much water. And the flip side of that is, you hate to say this as a VC to some extent, but it does matter how much additional capital is out there to help companies get to scale. You don't want to invest in something, no matter how brilliant it is, at a seed or series A, if there are just no follow-on investors. And the landscape of uh, venture and how much money is available in funds to invest in these companies at both early stage and growth stage has changed radically. Just in the last 12, 18 months, we've seen billions, you know, uh, at least 5 billion in new funds for early to growth stage come in in the last just 12 months. And that makes the risk proposition look a little bit better. And we can talk about why that new capital is flowing in, because I think it's for legit reasons. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, it's worth remembering that sort of this this world in which the capital intensity was a big, considered to be a big problem, maybe a death knell for a lot of these companies, that was a world pre-SoftBank Vision Fund, let alone pre-today's environment, with all the crossover hedge funds throwing tons of money into the sector, with all these new big growth stage funds. I was looking back at PitchBook. PitchBook counted 
597 what they called mega rounds, rounds over individual rounds over $100 million in the first three quarters of 2021, not in climate tech, just across the board. But, you know, we're in a funding environment where like the uh, scale of capital available to companies that have big promise, big markets and so on is unprecedented. And so to the extent that that doesn't disappear, and I'm interested in your take on this, I think it's only going to grow in climate tech for at least a, a few years, um, given the interest from LPs and commitments into these new funds. You know, I think you've de-risked the part of the question that is, is there follow-on capital if this works out? I think the answer to that is yes. The, more than at any time in the past ever, there is follow-on capital. I do think we'll see that oscillate. I, I do think we'll see waves of it come and go, just depending on the macro environment, what happens with the stock market and the global economy, and so on. But you're right. Uh, LPs have uh, more interest than ever, uh, and the policy environment and the competitive environment of how well clean tech stacks up to dirty tech have just changed the equation. So in the long run, I think we'll see more and more of this capital. Yeah. As I was thinking about this question, does it take too much capital to scale for companies in this space, especially for manufacturing? It strikes me that it's only really a problem for two reasons. The first is if the capital isn't available, which I think you know we've basically just pointed out it is for the moment. And then the second is it does basically place put you at a higher bar for an exit. Because if you are going to raise a lot of capital before you have an exit, then that exit needs to be commensurately larger because you're going to have a much longer uh, capital stack at that point. And so that it's inherently related to the fourth point we will talk about, which is what does the exit landscape look like? But it does, I think, mean that for these companies, you know, you can't build a really expensive manufacturing hardware climate tech company that's going to take $400 million to reach manufacturing scale that then doesn't have a huge opportunity on the other side. I think that's absolutely right. Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com slash events or click the link in the show notes. All right. So first point down, <laughs> too much capital to scale. I mean, I think our the short answer here is like, yes, it takes a lot of capital to scale. No, it doesn't necessarily take way more capital to scale than some of these other businesses that are getting built and the capital is available. All right, let's move on to number two, competing in commodity markets. Uh, so there's no opportunity for margins. What's your take here? Well, I think I would actually break this up into two separate questions. I think there's the extent to which clean tech has and does compete against non-clean tech commodities. And then there's the extent to which different types of clean tech or different companies in clean tech compete against each other. And that's the sector. And I think when you look at 
biofuels in particular, we had this phenomenon where 2007, 2008, we had oil prices sky high. And so there's a lot of optimism around around biofuels because the bar you had to hit as far as your cost per gallon or whatever metric you had for cost didn't look so infeasible. And when the oil price collapsed post the 2008 financial crisis, you had the overall landscape of what you needed to compete against uh, for fuel going into a tank change radically. And so I think that competition against commodity markets uh, is real. I do think it's very different now with policy that is really driving scale of clean solutions. And at this point, the obviousness that we're going to have policy ratcheting up and up and up over the long run. And that was, I think, a little bit less clear uh, 12, 13 years ago. Now, there is this other phenomenon, and I think here you see it in, in thin film PV, that in addition to the sort of the competition against, let's say, coal or gas in that case, and gas prices coming down didn't, didn't really help the solar market either, you still have this phenomenon of every solar company, every solar hardware company is in some sense competing against every other solar hardware company. And they're all riding these learning curves of the cost coming down. So I'm not going to say it's not a problem, but I do think there are smart ways to be an investor in that. One is to not underestimate the pace of reduction of either fossil fuels in cost or of competing clean techs, especially the dominant clean tech. But the other is to look for either initial niches where a new company can get a foothold, where the dominant technology doesn't win automatically, or parameters other than just straight up unit cost, where you can compete and differentiate. And I think that was a little bit lost in the first you know, clean tech uh, hardware investment cycle. But now I see investors being a little bit more uh, savvy and nuanced about that. You hit on a couple things I want to follow up on there that have been on my mind. One is you mentioned the sort of increasing obviousness of policy coming, you know, a sort of sub lesson that I think was often learned in that first cycle was you can't bet on policy, mm -hmm. right? Or you should not invest off the basis that policy will be coming. There's interesting trends in the market right now, like take carbon removal as an example, direct air capture, something like that. Like that is inherently a bet on policy, right? There's, it's hard to imagine that market really scales in the absence of substantial policy. So is it just now that it is more certain that there is enough policy coming and so it's okay to make that bet? Or are we just deluding ourselves? Well, I'd say, look, within clean tech and deep tech clean tech, there's some sectors I'm more confident than others. And there's somewhere the policy momentum, the policy train that's coming is really, really obvious. I'd say, for instance, storage, energy storage for electricity, it is completely obvious that renewable penetration is going up and up and up, and that focusing on decarbonization of grids is the first thing that policymakers around the world are doing, whether it's Europe as a whole, or the UK, now separate from the EU, or 30 US states, or maybe the US federal government. And so there, it's just dead obvious that there's a huge market for storage, or uh, mobility storage, you know, the storage market for um, EVs is much, much bigger than it is for stationary storage. And there again, just the, the momentum on EV growth, driven both by policy and cost declines, is just enormous. Other areas are perhaps a little bit more speculative. But you do see 
with the EU's fit for 55, 55% carbon reductions from 1990 by 2030, with the EU negotiating a 2050 complete net zero, with a handful of US states having effectively net zero laws in the books for 2045 or 2050, you do see something coming that's going to require uh, innovations outside of electricity and transport. And so I, I, I'm not sure that carbon removal is the place where I have the greatest a confidence with the CDR attack, but I do see that we're going to have over the 20 year time frame, uh, 30 year time frame, very clear push in some parts of the world for going well beyond electricity and transport and decarbonization. The other dynamic at play here that I, I, my views have, um, I would say changed on somewhat over time and particularly in the past year or two, is the concept of the green premium in a commodity market, right? So the, again, the sort of historical lesson is there is no such thing as a green premium in a commodity market. It's a commodity market. And so either you're pricing at parity or better, or you're not selling into the market. And, you know, we've started to see some cases in high volume commodity markets where at least at some meaningful scale, there are customers who will pay a premium for a zero carbon product because they will reap the benefits from having done so downstream. They will reap the benefits with their customers, with their employees, they'll reap the benefits with their shareholders and the activists who are leaning on them. And there, there feels to me to be enough of that momentum that I'm, I'm willing to say, at least in some of these sectors, that it's actually okay to assume a green premium at your to, while you are initially scaling. In the long term, you need to be cost competitive. There's no question. But can you come to market uh, not being the cheapest source of X on day one? I think in some markets, the answer to that is yes. And it has to do with sort of the degree to which there is consumer visibility into the use of X and then how much that pressures the customers. I think that's totally fair. And I think you see it, you know, you look at electricity, this goes well beyond electricity. You look at the RE100, these companies that have committed to all of their electricity from green sources. What you see there is it's tech companies, which there's a certain psychology of that, that they're uh, founder-led or one generation from founders. The founders have certain attitudes. There's a fierce competition for talent. And you see that employees in tech really want their employers to go green. Uh, but the next segment in the RE100 are primarily consumer brands, B2C brands. And when you look at them, those are B2C brands that already sell their products at a premium, that already have higher margins than the sort of lower brand value competitors they have. And they know that clean is a brand halo. So they're all looking for how do they position their goods as clean. So even if the, the clean technology you're selling is really B2B or you're selling it to corporates, they want to inherit the brand halo from that so they can keep positioning the products they sell to consumers as, you know, a higher price, more premium product. The, the other point that Rebecca Dell from ClimateWorks Foundation has made to me repeatedly, which I think is really salient, is that, you know, from the consumer brand perspective, oftentimes if you pay a premium for the most carbon intensive parts of the thing that you are making, you can pay a fairly hefty premium for those things, but the cost of the end product isn't affected nearly as much because the cost of those things aren't that big a share of the end product. So examples would be like, you know, we see this in cement and steel, right? Where there's buyers consortia that are starting to form now saying, I'm a big buyer of steel and I promise to source green steel 
by with some volume by some certain year. And you know, my expectation is they they recognize that probably in the early years of doing that they're going to pay a premium for that green steel. But is it going to significantly drive up? If I'm BMW, is it going to significantly drive up the cost of a car to an end consumer if you pay a little bit more for for steel in some of those vehicles? I don't think so. Same thing with cement and buildings, right? So there, there's a way to sort of hide that extra cost if you're getting enough value out of the, the B2C side at the end of the day. Yeah, you tweeted something about this just a few days ago, actually. And uh, I think uh, steel is one of my favorites because, you know, as a crude approximation, about half of steel goes into buildings and half goes into cars. And you see automakers who all, except Toyota, have decided that the future is electric uh, and that, you know, they are moving in that direction in part because consumers want vehicles like that. You see automakers starting to signal demand for green steel, as you were saying. And some analysis that I've seen is that that might, while it increases the cost of steel, certainly now, it might increase the cost of an auto by, you know, small single digit percent overall. And so there's a chance that for some of these automakers, they might start that green steel uh, utilization in their highest end products, use that as a way to get a brand halo, they might increase their margins. We don't really know at this point, but it doesn't have to be a gigantic uh, hit to the overall product cost, as you were saying. I think one of the biggest drivers, biggest unheralded drivers of the climate tech revolution of the success of these companies in the long term is going to be the fact that there is perceived to be, and I think increasingly proven to be, a brand halo associated with zero carbon, low carbon, clean products. It turns out, you know, if customers really care about that, it will drive all sorts of activity upstream. I think you're right. And this is steel, by the way is a sector, a couple of years ago, I wrote a piece for TechCrunch on how to decarbonize you know, the US and the world. And I said, look, I'm more freaked out about industrial emissions than electricity, because we should move faster than electricity, but industrial emissions and agriculture are the places we've made the least progress on. Steel is like 8% of global carbon emissions. It's three times aviation. Consumers don't really pay that much attention to it. Policymakers haven't either. But honestly, what we've seen in uh, steel makers like uh, SSAB in, in Sweden and in automakers expressing demand is a lot more progress in the last 24, 36 months in that sector than I expected at all. Well, this is my other thesis of, of part of what's happening in, in climate tech world and where to find opportunities from an investment perspective or technology perspective, which is that I think a lot of smart people have started to just look sector by sector at the biggest culprits and lay a lot of pressure on those sectors. Steel is at the top of the list for the reason you described, right? It's 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions alone in a single sector, single largest source of industrial emissions in the world. Cement is second to steel, also getting a ton of attention. You know, petrochemicals and chemicals are one beneath that. Like, we're just gonna go down the list, right? And everything that's on that list in the top, I don't know, 20 or 30 is gonna get a lot of pressure over the next five to 10 years. And that means there's gonna be opportunity for zero carbon alternatives. That's right. And I think it's it's in part because we've made progress on electricity and transport. And honestly, in deployment, we have a lot more to go, but now the writing's on the wall that clean electricity and electric vehicles are just gonna win on cost. So now people are lift, lifting their aspirations, policymakers are, corporates are, investors are, of what's next? What do I have to do to go beyond that? All right, so back to our list. This uh, this second argument that you know you kind of can't compete in commodity markets. I think 
my takeaway from this is basically it is actually really hard to compete in commodity markets and you got to be realistic about that like it's tough to build a business that that does that successfully with some novel technology particularly in these sectors where like we've been making portland cement the same way for quite a long time so you've got a high bar if you want to try to compete with the traditional process or the traditional type of cement with that said there is enough buyer pressure that if you've got a viable solution and a, and a clear path to scale, um, then there's there's a pathway for you where I wouldn't have said there was five, 10 years ago. Yep. Okay, on to number three, timeline. Time to commercialization is too long. It takes too long to build these things. This is actually probably the one that I heard, I would say the most in the wake of Cleantech 1.0 is people just saying like, this stuff takes too long. So it's not a venture capitalable sector. What's your take on timing? Well, the timeline is longer for anything hardware-related than it is for pure software. You can start a B2C software company or a B2B SaaS company and be selling products a year, two years down the road. Clean tech or anything really deep hardware-related is not going to be that fast. That said, now we start to see exits happening before commercialization has been achieved. You brought up QuantumScape earlier, that's a, a great example. Or uh, ESS, you know, my portfolio just went public uh, two weeks ago now when we we're recording this, and they've got a commercial product, but they haven't certainly hit commercial scale at this point. And I think that speaks to retail investors also being very excited about this sector, seeing the huge opportunities, seeing I think in a large sense, what happened with Tesla and wanting to find the next company in that sector. So I'm not going to say this is not a problem. This really is a challenge, uh, but it's no longer the case that we have to wait all the way until we have a product commercially on sale or at scale for this to produce an exit. Yeah, I would add three things, I think, on the timeline question. The first one is that as we just alluded to, there's a lot more urgency from buyers of these future products than there was historically. And so it's, I think, easier for credible solutions to get firm orders. I mean, LOIs certainly, but increasingly firm orders as well earlier in their life cycle. So like we have orders for electric planes from, you know, electric aviation companies that are going to come to market in 2026 at the earliest, but they have orders from big airlines today. That kind of thing is relatively new. And though it doesn't bring you to the market earlier, it certainly makes it easier for you to get from here to there because it's going to make it easier for you to raise capital and bring on more partners and so on. So first, I think there's sort of more urgency from buyers that draws forward commercialization for companies, even if the technology timeline still takes longer. The second thing is that I think there are some of these sectors in which you can iterate faster today than you could 10 years ago. We now have the applications of machine learning and AI to R&D in ways that we never did before. We have new tools like synthetic biology that are being applied. You know, All these things mean that there is sort of an opportunity for faster technology iteration that can bring things to market faster purely from a technology perspective, setting aside the like, you know, other reasons it takes a long time, which is regulatory and incumbency. Um, and then the third is that obviously, you know, the hand in hand with it taking a long time to do things is that it's tough to do those things. And so when you succeed to the victor go the spoils, you should have, you, you have a pretty clear moat. Whereas, as you said, you can build an enterprise software company pretty fast, um, doesn't inherently mean there can't be another competitor that builds the same thing even faster. I think that's totally right. And we used to believe that these companies, the software side, had much bigger moats than 
they do. We used to believe that, or companies like, again, I'll say Uber or WeWork, we thought, oh, they have natural network effects, they're going to have a gigantic moat. Uh, but it turns out switching costs for consumers are actually pretty low, and maybe lower in some of those purely software or primarily software app-based businesses than they are in really hard technology. All right. So takeaway on this one, on the timeline, it does take a longer time, typically. I think we've both we've both said that. But despite that, it seems less to me that it is sort of a death knell for an early stage startup than it was. One, because maybe you can move faster. Two, because you have more commercialization opportunities in the meantime. Three, because you may have an exit before you reach commercialization or full-scale commercialization. All these things just make it such that you know, taking longer is not the end of the world. There's also other sectors for what it's worth, like pharma is a big sector with long timelines, generally speaking, you know, heavy regulatory environment where there's been proven success for decades from a venture capital perspective. It's just whether the, the sort of, uh, whether the, the prize was worth the risk which it clearly was in pharma and maybe wasn't clearly for a while in climate. That's right. And that prize is looking better and better and better in climate now. Right. And so that gets to the last point, unattractive exit landscape, which I think was true before. There were not buyers who would pay big premiums for zero carbon alternatives to things or zero carbon businesses. You know, The public markets were not super friendly to these companies. And so it, it wasn't clear if you were successful, what it was even going to look like for you. This is maybe the one that most obviously has changed. I think this is the one that's had the hugest change just the last 12, 18, 24 months. And some of it is the public markets, certainly with SPACs, it's just been uh, a huge enthusiasm around deep tech. And I think it's a, a fair case we made that SPACs have generated more uh, upside for deep tech in climate tech and in other sectors than they have for any other type of investment as public investors really understand retail investors kind of can get their heads around what happens in a deep tech company, I think, or what the product is like, or what the impact that it has. But I think the other is the the big, gigantic, multi-billion dollar exits get most of the attention. But acquisitions have also been over not just the last 12 months, but the last, you know, three, four, five years have been a very substantial for earlier size exits. And I you see that, I think, especially coming out of Europe, you see European utilities, companies like the Enels and Iberdrola's of the world. You see even the European oil and gas companies, like them or, or hate them, what you see is they all understand that there's a clock ticking on their current uh, cash cows, and they're all trying to get a piece of the new pie in clean tech. And that's provided some of the you know best exits for companies like EV charging companies. I think you'll see that in sectors like hydrogen as well. So it's a more robust uh, exit landscape in both the public markets and in acquisitions. That's right. And I think the other point that's that's worth making is that it's not just the SPAC thing. I mean, two, two other things have been going on in the public market context. One is that the sort of IPO market, traditional IPO market has started to open up to some of this stuff as well. So it's not just SPACs. You know, we see companies in, in hard tech pre-revenue world, even outside of clean tech, right? So take like Too Simple, which is an autonomous trucking company that went public traditional way, despite being pre-revenue um, and being deep tech and having all, all the same risks everybody else has and has whatever it is, an $8 billion market cap or something like that today. And there, there's a bunch of other examples like that as well. Let's see what Rivian does, you know, when it goes out with 
eighty billion dollar market cap or whatever it's aiming for. That's that's not a SPAC. It's just a an IPO. So there's you know the sort of SPAC thing is maybe bleeding into the public markets in other mechanisms to get into the public markets. And the other thing is that the stuff that is deemed climate tech, at least as I've defined it, is performing well in the public markets as well. So we, a while ago, EIP just for our own purposes, created this uh, index, we call it the EIP Climate Tech Index. And it just tracks a basket of public companies, some of which were DSPACs, some of which were just, you know, larger public climate companies, take companies like First Solar and Vestas and Tesla and all these, tracks them all as a basket. So as of now, since the beginning of 2020, NASDAQ is up 62% as of this recording, and our climate tech index is up 97%. So it's performing roughly 50% better than NASDAQ over that period, which is to say not only are the markets open, but they seem to really attach a premium. That's phenomenal. And we've seen that in other areas as well. Just looking at in energy companies, if you plot energy companies uh, on one scale by what percent of their revenue comes from clean energy, and on the other scale by what's their uh, multiple of earnings that they get or multiple of revenue that they get in the public markets, it is off the charts. So you compare an Orsted, for instance, to any uh, oil company, and you just see this incredibly higher multiple because people see the market that Orsted is in, offshore wind, one of the leaders there, as a huge growth market and them as having a real competitive advantage. I do want to acknowledge the one thing I don't think we have seen yet in the context of climate tech, which is like mega acquisitions, which we, we do see in software world. So, you know, the sort of like Salesforce buying Slack for $28 billion and the, you know, there's there's tons of many multi-billion dollar acquisitions in software world. I can't think of too many of those yet in climate tech. Now, it may just be a little early, right? Because a lot of these companies newly have very rich currency that they didn't have before. So, it may be coming, but that's the one thing that I think we still need to see to really feel like this kind of like exit landscape question has been settled. I think it's a fair point. And I think it remains to be seen what will happen when we see big shifts in the commodity energy markets. You know, what happens if, as we hope, oil demand peaks this decade? Uh, it's a, just a, a rule of thumb that capital chases growth. So what's going to happen to these integrated, you know, international oil companies? What are they going to be? Are they just going to be winding things down, just returning money to their shareholders through dividends? Or are they going to be trying more and more desperately to pivot? And the same with utilities. All right. So we've tackled our four arguments for why hard tech and deep tech is, is a bad fit for venture capital and in, in climate. Um, but we haven't covered all the things that might be different now from the first cycle. There's a long list and I don't think we need to spend a ton of time on them, but uh, maybe we go back and forth and just name things that are also different today from Cleantech 1.0. Number one for me is just pure market size. If you go back 2004, the world was spending maybe 50 billion on cleantech, very broadly defined. Now we're spending well north of 500 billion. And that just means to the victors, to the companies that that win in this area, the spoils are larger based on current spend, and we have this long track record of growth. And people expect, you know, by 2030, we're spending a trillion dollars a year in clean tech. All right. So bigger market. Um, I will add the talent is a whole different caliber. I mean, there is the, the talent that is flowing into the climate tech world right now is unbelievable, incredibly strong, 
driven by urgency. I think there's a generational thing that's a part of it. You know, there's sort of a whole generation of people who are coming of age right now that feel differently about climate change, feel a different sense of urgency than than the same age people did 10 years ago or 12 years ago. Um, and they have incredibly strong pedigrees. They're tackling really big problems. So I, I think that the talent pool is just a whole other caliber. I completely agree with you. We've seen that a bunch of things like the climate draft, things with what uh, we've seen happening with my climate journey, pulling more people in and just a, a fierce hunger there. As a riff off that, I'd say the venture talent. We've had more and more people come from traditional venture backgrounds and say, this is what I'm doing, or even come from uh, energy venture backgrounds that used to invest in fossil fuels and saying, this is what I'm doing. And that in terms of bringing in new capital and bringing in mentorship, strategic advice, and so on, I think is not to be underestimated. All right. I have a couple more uh, things that are different. One is that we've proven a winner in the form of cheap renewables. Mm. Now, it wasn't necessarily, you know, an overall sectoral winner and from a venture capital perspective, but, you know, one thing that is true now, and you alluded to it before, is just solar and wind got really, really cheap. Lithium-ion batteries are getting really, really cheap. And everybody now appreciates that, and it's sort of widely recognized, and they happen to be zero carbon, and, you know, we've proven that it's possible. I think EVs are the next one, right? Like, we're, we're sort of proving that it's possible to do it. We didn't really have those proof points before. And so I think those, all those things having happened or being in the process of happening and being sort of inevitable, um, make it easier to imagine the next thing succeeding. I think that's massive. I would add to that a proof point for investors in the form of Tesla. And I, I don't think that one company can be ignored. When you have a trillion dollar company that's really a clean tech company, it completely changes the mind of retail investors about what's possible, uh, both as competitors or things in that sector, just things that rhyme or component suppliers like QuantumScape that could change the game in that area. And it changes to some extent the viewpoints of venture investors as well. Yeah, there's one thing I like to say to companies that we're talking to, which is, if you're going to try to do something big, you're either you're either going to be riding a wave or you're building a wave. And, you know, Tesla built a wave, and that's the hardest thing to do. They like, you know, absent Tesla, maybe we would have eventually electrified via passenger vehicles, but it certainly wouldn't happen as fast. You know, that if you're if you're trying to build a wave, the bar is set extremely high for you to do so, but but it is, you know, the biggest opportunity on the planet, you could still build really huge successful enterprises riding that wave. So if the wave is vehicle electrification, now you need better batteries. So you're QuantumScape, you need better lithium mining. So you're one of the direct lithium extraction technologies. You're building better, you know, anode materials. So you're Seal and Anotech. Like there are going to be many, many billion dollar companies built off of the back of vehicle electrification. So you either can build the wave or you can ride the wave. And if you correctly identify the wave that is being built and time it correctly, then, you know, the opportunity for you is still really large. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. All right. The other thing that I would say is different this is my final my final one is that I think there's there's particularly for deep tech in climate, there's a much richer ecosystem to help bring you along, especially in the early days than there was before. So the sort of maturity of places like ARPA-E, much, much stronger than it was. It existed in the first cycle, sort of midway through the first cycle, but it was really just getting up, up and running. Now it's a really big burgeoning organization with like a lot of heft behind it. Private sector organizations like Activate and all these other ones that can help bring scientists from sort of like the lab into 
pilot maybe or somewhere in that early stage. There's a rich capital ecosystem at that stage too. So this kind of like uh, warm bath that you can be put into as a early stage deep tech entrepreneur focused on climate, I think is is a real game changer ultimately. That's a fantastic one. Uh, my last one is just the global activation of passion around this. The, everything from activists marching in the streets to the school strike for climate to the effect that has had on policy. And I know I've mentioned this before, but it is now just crystal clear whether you're in Brussels or in New York or California or in Beijing, that the world is going to do more and more on this sector. People are experiencing extreme weather and have the perception that climate is here and now, whereas even five years ago, they thought it was something to deal with in the future. And I think that has just uh, you know, crystallized thoughts and minds on this and will continue to drive more and more enthusiasm in this sector. All right. So what's your verdict? Can deep tech venture capital work in climate? Shale, I'd say right now, deep tech venture is working in climate. If we look at the exits uh, just over the last uh, 24 months and the ones that look like they'll happen in the next 12 months, uh, it's the future is always uncertain. But right now, at this moment, it is working. All right. Well, I'm right there with you. Uh, it is what I spend my time on. So obviously, Likewise. I think it's going to work. But uh, but no, I do think I think it I you know, it's interesting as I've thought through this um, over the past few years. I think it's a combination of times have changed and we learned the wrong lessons huh. last time. I think both of those things are true. Like there are things that are different, but also I think we tacked too far in a particular direction. After we collectively tacked too far in a particular direction after Clean Tech 1.0. And so it's nice to see the pendulum swinging back in the other direction. And the pendulum might swing back again, but it will swing forward again as well. We are just, you know, sometimes in talks, I say we're in the middle of a, or at the early stages, honestly, of a hundred trillion dollar clean energy revolution. Essentially, we're going to turn over that, that. That sounds like it's just a made up number. When you look, actually look at the infrastructure turnover we need to address climate change, it is that big. And I have confidence that humans, when backed into a corner, will just start acting more and more aggressively in this sector. So do I expect clean tech investment to bust again? I actually do at some point, but I think it to rise from that trough as well. Mez, thank you so much for doing this. Exactly the conversation I wanted to have. Always a pleasure, man. Ramez Nam is a partner and the chief futurist at Prime Movers Lab. Okay, so this is a very real thing. My wife is currently pregnant with our first child. She's also and only. an only child, and she's currently sitting right here next to me, as you could hear. And she has agreed that if we hit 100,000 downloads of this podcast in its first month of existence, then our child's middle name will be Net Zero or possibly NZ, something similar. But <laughs> but if we don't hit 100,000 downloads within the first month, then she gets full carte blanche to give it whatever middle name she wants. <laughs> I'm smiling because it's going to be good. <laughs> so uh, do with that what you will, audience. <laughs> Catalyst is hosted by me, Shale Khan. The show is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can find me, Canary, and Postscript on Twitter. Tag us if you want to provide feedback on the episode or if you want to suggest future topics. 
You can find background links and topics and guests from this episode in the show notes, or you can go to canarymedia.com. Our producers are Daniel Waldorf and Stephen Lacey. Sean Marquand composed our theme song. I'm Shale Khan, and this is Catalyst. Catalyst.